You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. There's a fire starting in my heart, reaching a fever pitch, it's bringing me out the dark. Now, I know everyone's wondering why is Nick singing Adele? And trust me, it's for a great reason. It's to welcome our very special guest, Dr. Lisa Swanson, who's been coined the Adele of Dermatology. So Dr. Swanson, I hope that you enjoyed that singing. Welcome to the show. I enjoyed it immensely. Yes, I will not be singing. That's for sure. But I I enjoyed that immensely. Yes. (laughs) I wanted to ask, are you called the Adele of Dermatology because you have a great singing voice? No, definitely not. Definitely not. And you'd have to ask for sure where the nickname came from. You'd have to ask Dr. James Del Rosso. He's the one who gave it to me. And I take it as a tremendous compliment. Any comparison to Adele, oh my gosh. Uh, But no, it is definitely not as a result of my singing voice. I am a horrible singer. I am completely tone deaf, but I make up for it with tremendous volume. Okay. I was curious because I've been called the Leonardo DiCaprio of dermatology, the Brad Pitt of dermatology, the George Clooney of dermatology, but now I'm thinking it's because I'm not good looking. So I have to think <laughs> about that a little bit more. Um, so, you know, anyways, let, let, let's move on. So Dr. Lisa Swanson, board certified dermatologist, pediatric dermatologist practicing in Boise, Idaho. Dr. Swanson, we did an episode a few episodes ago where we had, um, Dr. Bill Higgins, Mohs surgeon at uh, UPenn, talk about how to match into Mohs surgery and how to be a better Mohs surgeon um, in residency, surgical dermatologist. And it got a lot of really great feedback. So I want to bring you on and talk about tips for matching in a PEDS Derm Fellowship, how to be a better pediatric dermatologist, and doing some PEDS board review. So hope you're up for all that. Yes, definitely. Yeah, count me in. (laughs) Okay, good. We have a lot to cover. Let's get started. First, please give me some tips on preparing for the pediatric portion of the core, basic, and board exam. Yes. So I think two big things. Number one, try to work with a pediatric dermatologist. You know, there are some residency programs in the United States that don't have a pediatric dermatologist. And if you're at one of those, try to see if you can do an away rotation and just spend some time immersing yourself in the world that is pediatric dermatology. It's a pretty cool world to be a part of. And you never learn better than you do when you see something right before your eyes in the clinic, that stuff really sticks. So the more exposure you can get to that, definitely the easier it's going to be to prepare for your boards. And the second thing, I think it really boils down to repetition. At least that's how I studied for the boards. You know, I had my resources and I just kept going through it, going through it, going through it. And every time you go through it, something else sticks uh, more firmly. And then before you know it, you're ready to take the test. So get exposure and then learn with repetition. (laughs) Yeah. Two great pieces of advice. I'm all about learning by repetition. That's how I feel like I learn the best because this stuff can't be learned overnight, unfortunately. It takes experience, like you said, in the clinic, seeing something with your own two eyes, discussing with the attending about the disease. No better way to learn something than seeing it in real life. And that's the point of the board. They want you to be a board certified practicing dermatologist, not a board certified test taker, right? (laughs) Yes, very true. (laughs) How about some favorite resources um, to help us learn all the genoderms and just all the facts that are needed to master the pediatric portions? What do you like or what do you recommend to your residents and fellows? 
Definitely. So I definitely, for genodermatoses, which are incredible boards fodder, like the boards love them. It makes for very easy questions that can be asked. And there's a lot to really memorize and learn and understand. And the best resources for that is definitely Spitz Genodermatoses. That was like my Bible when I was preparing for the boards. And me and a group of friends, fellow residents, we would get together once a week and we would go through Spitz. And we came up with different mnemonics and different ways to remember the various uh, little tidbits of trivia that you have to keep in your brain until Board's Day. And that stuff really helped a whole lot. I can still sometimes, when I see a patient with Pachyonychia congenita, think of my friend Tina and all the ideas she came up with for all the various ways to remember what we needed to remember. So get a group together and just dive into spits and do it once a week or every other week if you have time before board's prep. Um, And just go through it and have your friends help you come up with ways to remember all that stuff. That sounds like a great resource and a great idea. So I love those general tips, but I just want to focus on one specific area of board's fodder in pediatric dermatology, which is the differential diagnosis of a congenital vascular appearing nodule or plaque. So please break this down for me and help me and the other residents go through these questions when they come up. Definitely. So this is great boards fodder and also just really great practical knowledge. One of my pet peeves is that everything that appears vascular in a baby is called a hemangioma. And that's a dangerous thing to assume because there are other things that can present as a vascular lesion that definitely aren't infantile hemangiomas. And that that distinction, that differentiation is so important for the baby. The first thing you have to realize is that the history of a vascular lesion gives you a lot of information. So the classic history of a regular infantile hemangioma is that the lesion is either not there at birth or barely there at birth and then it starts growing over time. If you see a baby that had a big vascular nodule or plaque right at birth, that is not an infantile hemangioma. And your differential diagnosis includes congenital hemangiomas, which are known as riches or niches. So a rich is a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, and a niche is a non-involuting congenital hemangioma. And one of the big differences there comes up on pathology because a congenital hemangioma is GLUT1 negative. That's another good board's tip. Congenital hemangioma is GLUT1 negative, whereas an infantile hemangioma is GLUT1 positive. Other things on your differential diagnosis of a congenital vascular appearing nodule or plaque are things like an AV malformation, a tufted angioma, a kaposiform hemangioendothelioma. And those are important because a tufted angioma and a kaposiform hemangioendothelioma can be associated with the Casabac merit phenomenon, which also is something that very commonly occurs on boards exams. And then also on your differential is a tumor you know, like a rhabdomyosarcoma or a neuroblastoma, something, you know, very potentially serious for the baby. And so if you get a question on the boards that presents with a congenital vascular appearing nodular plaque, and the question says, what would be the next appropriate step in diagnosis and evaluation, you would want to select ordering an MRI. 
That's always the first thing you do. And yes, a baby needs sedation if they're going to have an MRI, but they also need to be still. And so it's very important for them to have that MRI and figure out more information about the spot. The biggest reason to do the MRI is to rule out an AV malformation before you do a biopsy. It's rare that the MRI completely diagnoses the lesion, but it's a necessary first step in your evaluation. And then once the MRI is complete, then you do your biopsy or have a colleague of yours do your biopsy or a surge, a pediatric surgeon, you know, depending on location, do the biopsy. Um, but that would be your stepwise approach. MRI, and then biopsy to determine your diagnosis with that differential diagnosis. Wow, that was so wonderful. I'm going to go back and listen to that as we talked about repetition. It's hard to get that down <laughs> on one shot, but I heard a lot of good things about paying attention to the history, the glute one status, the workup, uh, all really important things and very testable things. So that was really, really great information. Thank you. So let's jump into the main portion of the episode, and it's going to be how can residents be a better pediatric dermatologists improve their skills when dealing with patients, pediatric patients, which I say little people, big problems, or potentially big problems, or we want to avoid big problems when seeing pediatric patients. Not everyone will see pediatric patients in their career, but everyone in residency will have to at some point um, learn, learn these things in the clinic. And the first thing I want to ask is something that I really struggled with is how to perform a pediatric biopsy, or just give me some tips to help make things go smooth. So there's not screaming in the room and everyone's coming and saying, Nick, what's going on in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it really depends on the age of the patient. So babies are actually pretty easy to biopsy. You feel a little bit like a meanie doing, doing a biopsy on a baby, but those biopsies are actually pretty easy. Patients over the age of five or six, I can usually sweet talk them into getting them through it because you can reason with them and you can talk to them and you can prepare them for what to expect. I feel it's really important to never lie to a child as you prepare to do a biopsy, but you choose your words carefully. So I'll tell them that there will be a pinch and a burn. I don't say the word shot, but I tell them, honestly, it'll hurt for a couple seconds. You'll feel the pinch and the burn, and then it'll be numb. I'll do my thing. You won't feel that. And then we put a Band-Aid on it, and it's over. The toughest age group to do a biopsy on are kids age 18 months to four years old. That's really tough because they're big enough that they can be very strong, and they know what to expect. They've already had enough shots in their life, lifetime that they know that something bad is coming. Um, but they're too young to reason with and explain exactly what's happening. And so that's the age group where maybe I opt to observe something or try a treatment option to see if that can determine the diagnosis. Or I choose to follow with photos or I do have the capability at my local children's hospital to do biopsies with a little bit of sedation. And so sometimes if something really needs to get biopsied um, and it's just not going to happen in the office, I'll do that. The other tidbit I would say is about our teenage boy patients. It is very important to always give teenage boys a snack after a biopsy because these teenage boys, they'll drop like a sack of potatoes 
after you do the biopsy. And it never happens in the exam room. It happens in the waiting room or in the parking lot on their way out of the building. And it freaks everybody out. So years ago, I instituted a mandatory snack policy for all teenage boys having biopsies. And since then, I haven't had a single teenage boy pass out. So I would definitely pass on that tip for that particular patient population. Those are great tips. I have a mandatory snack policy too. And it's at the, it's at the end of the day. Yeah. That has yeah. nothing to do with yeah. biopsies, but snacks are important. And I think that's a really great, great tip because I've seen some teenage boys hit the ground as well. So water and snacks will go a long way. Um, and it's a great point you raised when doing a biopsy, you always have to think, is this biopsy really necessary right now? Or what else can we do to avoid this or delay this? You know, obviously, if it's appropriate, um, it's a good point because we always jump to a biopsy, but we have to think one step before, is it really necessary now? Yeah, I think pediatric dermatologists, we really pride ourselves on being excellent clinical diagnosticians because the impact of a biopsy on a child is such a big deal for everyone involved. And so we really try to figure things out a lot of the time without needing to do that step, but sometimes you got to. <laughs> so in that similar um, scenario of performing a difficult procedure on a patient, can you give me a couple tips on performing a Pete's genital exam? Because I know these are very sensitive exams and sometimes residents find them awkward, especially learning how to do them initially. Yes, yes. So I always call that area the private area um, or the undie area. Um, so those are the terms that I use to describe that location. Um, it's also important to always ask permission, both from the patient and from their parent, like, okay, I understand you have a spot in your private area, or I understand you have a rash in your private area. Is it okay if I take a look? I, prob I promise I'm not going to hurt anything. And I always typically say, you might see I'm putting on a pair of gloves right now. That's not because we're doing anything ouchy, but it's because it's your private area and that's the right thing to do. Um, and so I set it up like that. I explain that we're going to take a quick look. I might look at something else on their skin to show them how quickly it, uh, how quickly I can take a look at what I need to look at. And I'll show them my light, my derm light, and I'll say, this will just take a second. I promise no owies and uh, we'll take a look. If a child is really, really resistant to it, I definitely don't want to push that. And an option that I'll present to the patient and their parent is I'll say, okay, here's another option. I could step out of the room and your parent could take a picture of the spot or a picture of the rash. And then I'll come back in the room and take a look at that picture and then we can delete that picture. Um, and so I'll give them that option. And I always have the caveat where, you know, a picture is never as good as seeing it in real life. And maybe I'll look at the picture and still want to see it in real life. But sometimes that helps, you know, build a bridge uh, for a kiddo that's uncomfortable. Good. Those are really helpful tips too. I think a lot of residents when starting out with these sensitive exams really benefit from that. I want to ask you too about counseling because we get so good at counseling in dermatology with all the different diseases and different treatments or lack thereof sometimes, unfortunately, with adults. But how do you counsel a child about skin disease and, and how do you counsel them about having to do Dupixent, let's say, for uh, every couple of weeks for the next couple of months to years? That's a really hard thing to tell a child. So can you give me some tips on that? 
Definitely, definitely. You know, I think that counseling is also very age dependent. You know, if I have a patient with severe atopic dermatitis and they're over the age of five or six, I feel like I can actually have a pretty good conversation with them about their eczema and about a treatment like Dupixent. And again, I never lie to kids. I tell them exactly how it is so that they're not surprised. Because if you surprise a kiddo, they're never going to trust you again. And so it's very important to just be honest with them, tell them what to expect, tell them the truth. And so, you know, if a child is over the age of five or six and they have eczema, I'll often talk about how the eczema is affecting them. Like I'll ask things like, you know, how do you do with sports? Can you play sports? How do you do with sleeping? Can you sleep okay? How do you do with swimming? Are you able to swim in a pool or do you have to skip swimming stuff? Um, How do you do with the clothes you pick out? Are you able to wear everything that you want to wear? What do you say if kids ask you about your skin? How do you handle that? So that gives me a good sense for how the child is experiencing their eczema, and it gives me an opportunity to point out ways that choosing a therapy like Dupixent would benefit them. So if they can't play sports and they can't swim and they're itchy all night and they can't go to sleep, and I say, okay, well, let's talk about this option called Dupixent. And this medicine um, will really help your skin and really help your itch, and chances are you're going to sleep really good and you're going to be able to go swimming with your friends and you're going to be able to play all the sports you want. How does that sound? And they say, oh, geez, that sounds pretty good. And then I break the news that it's a shot. But I say, you know, it's once a month. For the younger kids, the dosing is once every four weeks. And so I'll say it's just once a month um, and you'll feel better all the other time. Um, And a lot of kids understand that. You know, you'll tell them this is just two to three seconds of ouch and you'll feel better all the other seconds of all the other days. And doesn't that sound good? Um, And I feel like sometimes I should take uh, inspiration from the Peloton um, class leaders because they say some pretty inspirational things. Like one of them says, Um, you know, we're born to do tough things and nothing is so bad that you can't do it for a minute. And so sometimes I'll say stuff like that to the kiddos, like you're born to do tough things. You're really strong. You're really brave. And this is going to help you feel better. Um, And so I focus on really the joy and the benefit that a medicine like that can provide. And yes, it is a shot, but let's try to see the big picture. Younger than five or six, I'm having that conversation mostly with the patient's parent. The child's too young to really understand. And a lot of the time in the younger kids, we're just trying to get get them through it. And we know they're going to cry. We know they're not going to like it. We know we're going to see benefit and it's going to make the child happier, even if they can't understand that. Uh, And so we just kind of power through with those younger kids. But kids older than five or six, you can really have a good conversation with them. In fact, I had a five-year-old recently. Recently, and I was telling him about Dupixent, and um, I told him everything about it. And he said, you know, I said, have you seen the commercials for Dupixent? And he said, oh, yeah, are those the commercials where the people take off the clothes that are the same colors as the background? And I said, yeah, that's the one. And he said, oh, well, I'll take Dupixent if I can be on a commercial. And I was like, okay, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. <laughs> 
that was that was amazing. You know, as you were talking, I was pretending I was a five year old who was needle phobic, and you totally convinced me. So please give, give me give me this life saving medication that I could go in the pool and wear the clothes I want and and go out with my friends. So that that was really really great advice. And I love I love those quotes too. Next time I'm in the gym lifting weights, I'm going to tell myself we're born to do tough things and yes, <laughs> put a yes. little more weight on 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 the bench press. Um, yes. One more thing about uh, being a pediatric dermatologist is um, I know there's a lot of psychosocial issues that kids face with bullying with skin disease because you know it's on their skin, it's visible, and they might have itch and they might have lesions, they might have rashes. So how do you work with um, the kids in your exam room um, to address these issues? Yes. So I think number one, I try to treat their skin disease so they don't have to be embarrassed about it anymore and and other kids don't comment or bully them anymore for it. And we're fortunate to be practicing dermatology at this time when we have so many options to really help people with chronic skin disease like atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. And so that's the first thing I focus on is can I fix this child's dermatologic ailment? Um, the, the other point I like to make is with regards to birthmarks because birthmarks Some of them are treatable, some of them are not, and some of them can be a little bit stigmatizing. But one thing I like to say to patients and their parents is that the way a child grows up to feel about their birthmark is 100% dependent on how the parent and family feel about their birthmark. Even young children, they feel that from their family members whom they love. And so if there's constant negative attention paid to a birthmark, they're going to feel negatively about it. If it's portrayed in a positive light, um, you know, I've had some patients' families that will call a birthmark like, you know, a God's kiss or an angel's kiss. Or um, sometimes if I'm seeing a little kid with a birthmark, I'll say, you know, I've heard these give kids superpowers. Do you think that's true? You know, so framing it in a positive way really has an impact on how kids grow up to feel about it. And I'm an example of that. I had three uh, infantile hemangiomas on my face when I was a baby, and I have zero negative memories about it because for my parents, it wasn't a big deal. These were my hemangiomas. It was okay. And so I never felt stigmatized. I never even allowed bullying to happen because if kids said something, I was just like, oh yeah, they're my hemangiomas. Like, get over it, dude. So the the more a parent can support their child and and support them in feeling positive about themselves and their self-image, the better it is when they grow up and have to speak for themselves. Yeah, that's those are that's really great advice and really great points. I was a psychology major in college and I concentrated in social and personality psychology and I always try to keep these things in mind because they're very important, especially with kids. Uh, Dr. Swanson, really great tips um, on improving residency pediatric dermatology. I want to ask you now though, for those interested, can you give me some tips and give everyone some tips on matching into Pedsderm Fellowship? What do the directors look for and what attributes do you want to put forward when applying? So really what um, uh, fellowship directors look for is somebody interested in pediatric dermatology, Nick. It's, it's, 
you know, it's not the most chosen subspecialty coming out of a dermatology residency. And there are several reasons for that. You know, I, I think there's two biggies. One is that there are a lot of residency programs that don't have a pediatric dermatologist. And without exposure to the field, how do you even know if you're going to like it? I had no idea that pediatric dermatology was a thing. And then I was a second year derm resident and I was on my peds derm rotation. And I was just like, man, this stuff is so cool. And if I had been at a place where I hadn't had that exposure, I never would have known. And I would just be a, a perfectly happy but just general dermatologist. The second reason that interest maybe isn't as high as as it should be is that it is an additional year of training that people kind of invest in their career. And reimbursement and, and general kind of productivity for pediatric dermatologists is lower than for general dermatologists and the other subspecialties. And so that does have an impact on things. But I look at it in a really positive way because you end up having a group of people who chose pediatric dermatology because they love pediatric dermatology. And at last count, we had 336 board-certified pediatric dermatologists in the country. And you never do peds derm for the wrong reasons. You do it because you love it. So it's a group that I'm really thrilled to be a part of. We have several fellowship programs in the United States, and all of them have either one spot or two spots available. And frequently, only about half the spots are taken. So the, the biggest thing you can show a fellowship director is an interest in pediatric dermatology and a genuine love for wanting to pursue the field. And so it's not a hard fellowship to get, but I'll tell you, it's super awesome. You're you're right. And I think it's something that we kind of forget. We just push it aside. But Showing interest is really the most important thing in anything that you do, whether it's dermatology residency, dermatology fellowship, any field that you do. The people that I think that I want to take into my program are the people that just are the most passionate about dermatology and want to be there and show up. And we have a bunch of medical students where I'm a resident who want to go into dermatology. And the ones that are the best are the ones that show up the most because they're passionate about it. And you can teach anybody to do dermatology, right? But people who have passion for it and are showing up every day, that's really the, one of the most important attributes to me. And, and it's, it's pretty simple, but you're right. Just showing interest, whether it's working at a kid's camp who, who have skin diseases or doing a project or going to a meeting or setting up a fundraiser. Those are really important things uh, that they look for. Is that correct? Yes, definitely, definitely. And they all just exemplify a genuine interest in the field. And, and that's, that's the most important thing. Awesome. Love that. Great advice for Peds Derm Fellowship or for anything that anyone pursues in the future. Dr. Swanson, this has been an amazing episode. I feel like I'm an uh, amazing pediatric dermatologist now. I can go out tomorrow and just see 60 kids and, and be perfect. I, I'm just kidding. Yay, I, I, I have confidence a, in you. <laughs> I would feel a lot more comfortable if I had to do that. So thank you for that. We always end with a personal fun question. And I know you practice in Boise, Idaho. So I've never been to Idaho before. I would love to go. Pretend you're the director of tourism for Boise, Idaho, and in about 30 seconds to a minute, why should I visit Boise, Idaho? Yeah, it's all about the potatoes, Nick. It's all about the potatoes. I love Idaho potatoes. potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Idaho potatoes are truly special and truly awesome. And we're recording this right before New Year's Eve. And that's really important here in Boise, Idaho, because at midnight on New Year's Eve, 
we drop an enormous potato in front of the Capitol building instead of a mirrored ball. So at, from 10, 9, 8, 7, we drop an enormous potato. It is on the internet. You can watch it at home. And uh, it's pretty impressive. We also have a place here called Boise Fry Company where you go in and you pick your type of potato. So like Idaho, uh, Idaho russet or sweet potato or purple potato. And then you pick your shape of fry. So curly or wedge or skinny. Uh, and then you pick your dipping sauces. And then you just go to town. Also, I would have to mention that there's so much outdoorsy stuff to do here in Boise, Idaho. We have hiking trails up the wazoo. We have an awesome green belt path that goes all through town where you can bike to your heart's content. And we have awesome skiing and mountain activities really close by. We have Sun Valley right around the corner and McCall, which is a super awesome little hidden gem here in Idaho. So, so much active outdoorsy stuff to do. You sold me. That sounds great. <laughs> if I ever make it out there, we'll, we'll go to the, uh, the the fry restaurant together. And I'm getting so hungry, I might grab a burger and fries for dinner. This really got me excited yeah. for potatoes. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you have, you have another career as a tourism director for Boise, Idaho. So you did a great job. I would happily do it. I would happily do it. <laughs> well, well, thank you again, Dr. Swanson, for the advice. And it was great chatting with you tonight. Thanks, Nick. I was thrilled to be here. Money.